You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. And shivers down your spine Shrieking skulls will shock your soul And seal your doom tonight Spooky, scary skeletons Speak with such a screech You'll shake and shudder in surprise When you hear these zombies Hello and welcome to Oh No Lit Class The podcast whose bumps are gonna goose ya Listener beware You're in for a scare I'm Megan I'm confused You're also RJ I'm RJ <laughs> Uh, what are you confused about? It's the Halloween times. It's the spook season. I'm a pagan. Why? Why are you like this? Because I'm not pagan. Thanks for killing, uh, let's see, my Halloween spirit, this bit, and the entire opening to this episode. It's Halloween. We're gonna bump your gooses the worst i'm rj you are rj and yes this is our first halloween episode of the month and gosh i'm just so i'm so hyped to be back in the scare zone that's my favorite place and so we're kicking things off with a short story that was selected by our beautiful wonderful delightful patrons technically it's a novella fine it's a it's a novella next episode is short stories i'm told you're told And it tells the scariest story of all. Adaptational decay in mainstream pop cultural consciousness. And also, Victorian moral hypocrisy. And also a dude who takes a potion that makes him turn into another dude who does crimes. I'm speaking, of course, of Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, you did it correctly. Yeah, that's right. What, did you think I was going to fuck it up? Yep. Well, I was ready. I knew you were ready. That's why I was ready, so fuck you. Um, Yeah, it's Jekyll. Live with it. Live deliciously. Live deliciously. And correctly. (laughs) The story of Jekyll and Hyde is so well known that the two characters have become a shorthand for, I don't know, like, duality of man and seemingly good people with a secret dark side, id, super ego, that kind of shit. Uh, There have been more than 120 film adaptations alone, and, much like two other iconic literary characters that we've covered on this show, Dracula and Frankenstein's monster, pretty much all the adaptations are fucking wrong. And we're gonna kind of go into that. And so, over the years, Stevenson's characters have devolved into these archetypes of Jekyll, being called Jekyll, for one thing, as a milk-toast young science man, and Hyde as the crazy, violent sex maniac he keeps hidden away inside himself. Sometimes he looks like a weird vampire zombie, like some kind of bizarro Superman-looking thing. Other times, he's sort of a less hairy wolf man, and, and sometimes he's just a big, beefy dude. He's just jacked as all fuck. So, had you read this novella prior to us doing the episode? Yes. Oh my god, we got one! Specifically, <laughs> I read the one that had the pictures in it. The one, I don't know what that means, the one that had the oh, pictures man. in it. Oh man, in the 90s, they gave you those novels where every other page was a picture. <laughs> 
The illustrated it, classics? I yeah. Think? Yeah. Yeah, that one. White Fang. I think I had the one for... Huckleberry Fang. I had the one for Tom Sawyer. Uh, Tom Sawyer. Yeah, I probably wasn't... This is one of them. I see. Do you remember what Hyde looked like in the illustration? Like Br'er Fox. <laughs> really? Yep. <laughs> Dang. Okay. I had never read it prior to this. I, I only knew about it from like pop culture and whatnot, and we watched the 1931 film version, which we're going to talk about later, and then I read it and was just like, oh, this is completely different. This isn't that at all. <laughs> and you read the whole novella? Yeah. All right. It's online. Wow. This is one of those ones that's in the public domain. You can go online and read it for free at the Project Gutenberg. Anyway, before we can get into the, the spooky, scary story of Jeekland Hyde, we gotta talk about the super scary Stevenson that uh, penned the novella in the first place. RJ? Robert Louis Balfour Stevenson was born November 13th, 1850, and he then transformed into his corpse state on the 3rd of December, 1894. Wait, wow, he didn't hang in for very long, did he? Nope. That sucks. And that would be uh, 44 years. So, why would I call him the original R.L., Unlike that Johnny-come-lately R.L. Stein, who was a name thief, <laughs> I will simply call him Robbie. Robbie was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, to Thomas Stevenson, a leading lighthouse engineer, and Margaret Isabella Balfour, a homemaker. So, the Stevenson family was a family of lighthouse designers. It is a unique profession, to be sure. Grandfather Robbie, shockingly named Robert, Mm. Fucking Europeans was a White House engineer. Also, both of Robbie's uncles did the same thing. Hell, Robbie's other grandfather on his mother's side was a White House engineer. You couldn't avoid a White House engineer in Scotland to save your life. <laughs> Nothing but golfers, White House engineers. Life House engineers? Or what? Engineers of the early 2000s band Life House. Yeah. White House <laughs> engineers. Miradas and Sean Connerys. That's it. That's all that's in Scotland. That and, I guess, Scrooge McDuck. When Robbie turned six, he was asked, if you could become a lighthouse engineer, would you? If you had the chance to become a lighthouse engineer, would you? He said, nay. <laughs> okay, so it didn't quite happen like that, but we'll get back to that in a bit. Sorry, everyone who listens in Scotland. While Robbie wound up not inheriting the family profession, he did inherit a lifelong disease from his mom's side of the family. Oh, that's less fun. Robbie's maternal grandfather, Louis Balfour, yep, his name is a combination of both his grandfather's names if you're paying attention. You're taking that surprisingly well. Well, you know, you got Robert Stevenson over here, Louis Balfour over there, and now we got Robert Louis Balfour Stevenson. God. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so the grandfather had what was described as a weak chest. Basically, in damp, cold weather, he would develop coughs and chills. So, it was great that everyone was living in the tropical paradise known as Scotland. Contemporary thought is, is that Robbie had tuberculosis, or, boy, I don't know why I did this to myself, oh, or bronchial stasis, or even sarcoidosis. Bronchiectasis, or sarcoidosis, yeah, we'll go with yours. Yeah, which would explain his lifelong affliction with respiratory issues. Also, it would explain why Robbie was so thin and frail throughout his entire life. He's a very gaunt-looking fellow. Man, if I could lose weight by getting TB, I don't know. <laughs> it might be worth it. Dying of tuberculosis? We have treatments today. Just 
have it long enough. For beach season? Yeah. <laughs> so given his constant illnesses, Robbie's parents, being relatively well-to-do, were able to afford a live-in nurse. Her name was Allison Cunningham. The thing is, like me, the Stevenson family liked utilizing nicknames. So nurse Allison Cunningham was shortened to... Oh, no. Cummy. Nurse Cummy. No, you're lying. Motherfucking Robbie and crew called their living nurse Miss Cummy. Oh, Cummy, could you come help me, please? By the way, Cummy. This is, this, gonna this, take a while. this is almost as bad as Ballsack. So, by the way, Ballsack. By the way, Cummy was apparently very religious. Fervently so. Her chosen religion was Calvinism. Cummy's blabbering about Calvinism was apparently nonstop and it really bothered Robbie as he was not much about the whole God thing. But with Cummy around, he started having nightmares about God. Cummy, come quick. I had the dream again. In short, the Stevenson household sounds like a lovely place to have grown up in. So. You got a problem with Calvinist Cummy? <laughs> I mean, where do you think they got that from? It's Cunningham. I guess they didn't want to call her Cunny? I don't know. Well, they, could, they, could, they could just call her fucking Alice. Allie. Allie is also cute. Cummy. Cummy. <laughs> it's like when you get, you know, your grandma and the little kid comes up with like the worst grandma nickname imaginable because it's like the first thing they can say and you're stuck with it. It's like, Game Gam. And it's like, well, that's your name forever now. You're Game Gam. So maybe when he was a baby, he called her Cummy, and, and that's just, that was it. Did they know what cum was? Or not what cum was. Did they, <laughs> they didn't know that? what cum was back then. I'm pretty sure they were using that word back then. No one had ever ejaculated before. Robbie wound up being an only child. So when he was sent off to the equivalent of elementary school, being a small, sickly, lonely, and according to biographers, a, quote, strange-looking child. Harsh. The whole school thing didn't go so well. Then again, he was sick so often, most of his early education came at home at the hands of private tutors. Poor little guy. No wonder he wrote, like, a bunch of adventure novels and stuff. He was sick all the time and, like, bedridden and isolated. Robbie actually was a late reader. He did not learn to read until he was about eight years old. Despite that, from an early age, he dictated many stories and ideas to his mother, his father, and, of course, Miss Cummy. <laughs> oh, Cummy. Once Robbie began to read and write, he wrote nonstop. At first, everyone in the household supported him. Then one day, his father came across a bunch of Robbie's stories, didn't like them, and told Robbie it was time to, quote, give up such nonsense and mind your business. Jeez. Yeah, whiplash much, Pa? Yeah, really. What an asshole. Eventually, Dadby came around to it and paid for Robbie's first works to get published when Robbie was 16. And we would... Did another 180 there. They're going to be doing a lot of those. At the age of 17, Robbie went off to university, specifically the University of Edinburgh. Never having been one for school, Robbie spent most of his time devising plans to avoid lectures. This is not to say the university experience was fruitless. Quite to the contrary. Robbie would meet Charles Baxter, who would become his financial agent. Fleming Jenkin. What? Fleming. Fleming? But it's two E's. Fleming. Fleming. Is there a Y? Nope. Fleming. Fleming Jenkin, what a name, who was a theater major and theater manager, which became a big interest for Robbie, and he met and got to know a cousin, 
cousin Robert Allen Mowbray Stevenson. Now, given the Stevenson's penchant for nicknames, any guesses as to the nickname for Robert Allen Mowbray Stevenson? Seemony. <laughs> yeah, well, Bob. It was just Bob. It was just Bob. Yeah, they very lazied out on that one. Well, I feel let down. Yeah, me too. Every summer, Robbie was required to travel with his family all across Scotland to check out the lighthouses his family engineered. What a way to spend your summer vacation. That sucks. Every summer, Robbie did manage to use the geographical locations of the trips as inspiration for his writing, although the actual focus of the trips never particularly interested him. Apparently on all these trips, Robbie's dad was trying to sell him on becoming an engineer, like everyone else in the family. Look, son, isn't this cool? Isn't it neat? If you built one, my life would be complete. He was a mermaid. Of course. Eventually, Robbie just came clean and came out of the closet as a man of letters. Mom said her and Pa were, quote, resigned to the choice. To smooth things over and to make sure... He'd have some financial security. Robbie promised his parents to get a law degree. You know, just in case. Fallback plan. Robbie wrote a poem memorializing his choice of letters over lighthouses. I perform it now. Ooh. Say not of me that weakly I declined the labors of my sires and fled the sea. The towers we founded and the lamps we lit to play at home with paper like a child. But rather say... In the afternoon of time, a strenuous family dusted from its hands the sand of granite and beholding far along the sounding coast its pyramids and tall memorials catch the dying sun, smiled well content to this childish task around the fire addressed its evening hours. Yeah. The whole lighthouse business was just the first of many blows Robbie dealt, however. He began to wear his hair longer. His dress became more bohemian. Mm. Hell, he dumped most conventional fashion and wandered around wearing a velveteen jacket. Oh yeah, and he outwardly bemoaned religion, declaring himself an atheist against his parents' wishes and against the wishes of Mrs. Cummy. Specifically, Robbie and Cousin Bob started the LJR Club, Liberty, Justice, Reverence. Not Liberty, Justice, and Roberts. Would have worked just as well. Which had a constitution that read in part... Quote, disregard everything our parents have taught us. <laughs> so hardcore. Now, see, I've never belonged to a club with a constitution. Things were just so much more formal back then. Can you pinpoint his age at this time? Early 20s. This is a little old for that rebellious, like, well, just everything our parents said is wrong. But it's still pretty funny. Yeah, so he's like 22. Yeah, it's a little old for that. Upon all of this, Robbie's dad said, quote, you have rendered my whole life a failure. <gasps> As for his mom, quote, this is the heaviest affliction that has ever befallen me. So they were just a family of drama queens is what you're telling me. Just all of them. Robbie's reaction to his parents. Oh, Lord, what a pleasant thing it is to have damned the happiness of probably the only two people who care a damn about you in the world. God damn. Sadly, Miss Cummy was not around for comment. When Robbie was 26, he went on a canoe trip with friends and met a lass by the name of Fanny Van de Grift Osborne. Van de Grift? Van de Grift Osborne. So he was 26. She was 36. She was married to a Civil War veteran, and she had three kids. But Robbie was smitten all the same. 
After partying, he wrote to her and kept up a correspondence with her. He picked up on the fact that her marriage kinda sucked, so he played the long game. Eventually, she divorced her husband. The problem was, she and her kids were living in San Francisco. And he was not, still being in beautiful, tropical Scotland. So, in a grand romantic gesture, he took a boat across the pond, took a train across the continent, got to Monterey, California, which is about 120 miles south of San Francisco, and fell deathly ill. Oh no! He had to be nursed back to health by some good Samaritans before continuing on his journey. Four entire months passed during this journey from Scotland to San Francisco. Oh my god. Yeah, we take travel for granted nowadays. I'll tell you what. That's true. Please, please tell me that this epic quest for romance ends well. Oh. When he finally found Fanny, he was not in the best of shape. He was poor, working for 45 cents a day, but... Fanny was tickled pink by his journey, and the two married shortly thereafter. Yay! Robbie's appearance at the wedding was described as, quote, a mere complication of cough and bones, much fitter for an emblem of mortality than a bridegroom. Less, yay. You take them as they lie. <laughs> for the next seven years, Robbie moved the family around in an attempt to find a suitable place to live, a place where his health didn't completely turn to shit. Eventually... Through travel and adventure, he learned that he did his best when he was on the sea in tropical and subtropical locales like Hawaii, the Samoan Islands, and Tahiti. When he was 40, he bought 400 acres of land in Samoa, where he resided during his later years. He integrated well with the community there. He took on a Samoan name, Tusitawa, Samoan for a teller of tales. Oh, I like that. That's nice. He was engaged in local politics, and many of the locals actually came to him for advice. He took it upon himself to help the oversight of Samoa, which was under English rule at the time. By his estimation, it was being done completely negligently, and he did his best to manage to get new people in charge through his efforts. Robbie made sure to keep his efforts up through his writing and his physical activities. He said, quote, I wish to die in my boots. No more land of counterpane for me. To be drowned, to be shot, to be thrown from a horse, I, to be hanged, rather than pass again, through that slow dissolution. Aw, gosh, that's like pretty heavy because he's been sick all the time. I get that, yeah. In 1894, at the age of 44, he was feeling young and spry again. He said of his energy level, quote, it's so good that it frightens me. On December 3rd, 1894, Robbie was 44 and him and Fanny were having dinner and Robbie was straining to open a bottle of wine when he suddenly looked at Fanny and exclaimed, what's that? And then asked his wife, does my face look strange? And then he collapsed and died, likely of a cerebral hemorrhage. Holy shit! Yep. Oh my gosh! Yep. What's that? Does, Does my, my face, face look strange, strange while he's trying to open a bottle of wine? Fuck. I mean, I'm glad he didn't like waste away in a, a, a you know sanitarium or sanatorium, whatever the fuck, uh, somewhere. But like, shit, that's traumatic. Yep. Like, imagine being Fanny. Probably didn't want to have wine anymore. Probably not. No. Only Cummy was there. <laughs> Something could have been done. The locals surrounded his body as guards during the night until they were able to carry him up the nearby mountain and bury him the next day overlooking the sea. Based on his wishes he voiced earlier in life, his requiem was inscribed on his tomb. Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Glad did I live and glad we die. And I laid me down with a will. This be the verse you grave for me. Here he lies where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from sea. And 
the hunter home from the hill. The Samoans love Stevenson so much, they actually turned that into a Samoan song, which is still sung at times of grief, all the way up till today. Wow. Yep. I had no idea. The end. Now, one thing I want to say about the novella that we are about to cover. Say it. Is how this text took its form. So, when Robbie wrote Jico and Hyde, shockingly, Robbie was sick. (laughs) Who could have guessed? Now, usually Fanny read his drafts and offered criticisms of them, and this was not any different with this novella. Because of his sickness, she left her notes with the manuscript in the bathroom near the toilet to give Robbie, I guess, something to do in there, other than count the tiles. Fanny said of the first draft that it came off like a conventional story rather than an allegory, which is what she thought Robbie was going for. Robbie didn't like this, so he came out of the bathroom and told Fanny he left something for her and pointed to the ground in the bathroom. Oh no, did he did he poop on it? Well, there are some horrific things it could have been. <laughs> it was the manuscript and ashes on the ground. Oh, thank God. He decided to burn it and start over by writing the allegory from scratch. Biographers claim he rewrote the entire manuscript in three days. They, they claim he was on drugs when he did it, likely cocaine, which might explain a few things about Robbie and his life. With that in mind, I turn this over to Megan. Hey everybody, it's Megan, obviously. Or is it? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a Jekyll and Hyde situation and I'm actually someone else. Anyway, this creepy, crawly Halloween episode is brought to you by our wonderful, fantastic, beautiful patrons that just probably smell really nice. It's just—it's an assumption. Admittedly, I'm making assumptions here, but I'm willing to go out on a limb and say most of them probably smell pretty nice. Uh, especially Barry, Kendall, Morgan, Caitlin at Rose of Phantom, ES, Mads, Amy W, Sarah R. Natalie, Kate D, not to be confused with Katie, who's also here, Katie, Samariel, Camilla, Cheryl, Aries, Lonnie, at Lanyon, Pseudobred, Wendy, Brandon, Florian, Sam, Kiki, Jared, Tanner, Ben at KNSJM, Dirk Damon at Killing You Guy, Jen, Janet, Amy B, Aaron, Karen, Sarah C, Lucas, Kiki, Not Alone Podcast at Not Alone Pod, Ariel and Ariel Teague, Chris at Play Comics, Melina, and Alexander. It's a solid list of folks right there. We're still not at 50 yet, so you had to keep putting up with this. By my silence! <laughs> and uh, this week's pod pals are me yeah that's the the scariest thing of all it's that that other show that i'm on that i do that's also very good in case you don't get enough of all this don't know what that means but it's called rolling misadventures and it's a tabletop real play of a a game called fiasco but it's also kind of an audio drama if we were totally making it up as we went along which honestly is part of the fun. And I do it with two other podcasters, Derek from Sometimes Geek and Charles from, I don't even, I don't even know anymore, but uh, they're both much funnier than me. So check it out. 
I'm JDC053, a confused clone without any pants. Um, I'm James Not-A-Cop, who is definitely not a cop. I'm Tobias Clutterbuck, a terrible Victorian actor. I'm Action 6 news reporter Chet Cleveland. I'm star of the stage Helen Slaymaker. And I'm Lieutenant Starburst Cheez-It Taco Bell Esquire, the third. And this is Rolling Misadventures, a podcast that's part tabletop real play, part improvised audio drama, and a complete and total fiasco. Join us every two weeks for stories of mayhem, murder, and occasionally a moose. So check out Rolling Misadventures and see how it all goes wrong at rollingmisadventures.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dick beans. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get down to Stevenson's spooky story of the dangers of neglecting proper potion testing protocols. So, RJ. What's up? How do you think this starts? With Jekyll, right? Because he's the main character of the story, right? Is he? No. No, Hyde is, man. No, not him either. Oh, it starts with them. No, it doesn't. Yes. No, it doesn't. It starts with a dude named Mr. Gabriel Utterson. Yeah. A uh, upstand. What do you mean, yeah? You just said it starts with Jekyll and Hyde. And what's he blabbing on about? Well, well, oh, well. Utterson is not blabbing on about anything, thank you very much. He's an upstanding Victorian gentleman and a lawyer whose main traits, according to Stevenson, are. Call me Utterson. Yeah. I'm Victorian. I'm a lawyer. No, no. He's, this story's he's res- about me. Respectable. He's not, he's not Ishmael. Don't call me Ishmael. I'm. Utterson. You can say that voice for Hyde if you want. No. <laughs> so yes, he's respectable, he's loyal, and deeply, utterly, perhaps even Uttersonly, boring. Just super boring. Just a real saltine cracker kind of guy. And that's our protagonist. Utterson's out with his friend, another dynamite of excitement named Mr. Enfield. Apparently, every Sunday they take a brisk stroll together, during which neither of them says a single word to each other. It's a friendship that Ron Swanson would approve of. Well, sometimes you got to say shit to people. You just experience them. You never stop saying shit. Yeah, I do. Well, Watch me. And then he said nothing for the rest of the episode. However, as they pass a particular street, Enfield breaks this silence to be like, Oh, hey, I just remembered this completely wackadoo thing that happened to me last time I was on the street the other day. And he proceeds to tell Utterson... That as he was walking down this self-same street early one morning, presumably thinking about tax codes or muted gray cummerbunds or something, uh, and he sees a man who's withered and misshapen and therefore evil-looking, obviously. Enfield sees him slam into a young girl and promptly trample her to the ground, which honestly seems like it would take some effort and, and a bit of time. It's not like being trampled by a Black Friday crowd or something. It's just one dude... Apparently doing some kind of, like, river dance shit on this kid while Enfield just watches. Just watches him trample a child. It's like he thought he struck oil, so he did, like, the oil uh, baron dance, you know, side to side. <laughs> Ha-cha-cha-cha-cha! Yeah. And, uh... Struck blood. She didn't die or anything, but, but still. When the man tries to make a break for it, post-trampling, Enfield grabs him and a crowd is gathered. And they all see that on top of being the kind of dude that uses a child as a trampoline, he's also just mad ugly. He's so overwhelmingly unpleasant in the face department that the crowd starts chanting to kill him. 
I do like that Stevenson makes a point to specify that it wasn't necessarily the crime of turning a kid into a sidewalk pancake that got them in a murdering mood, but instead his horrible, nasty face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gross. Yeah, well. If he was attractive, he totally could have ran that child into the cement. Anyway, this uh, gross goblin man is like, wait, don't kill me, I have money. That fixes everything. And sure enough, he goes into the house he was heading towards and pops back out with a check for 100 pounds to give to the girl's family. Signed by a name that Enfield refuses to mention because he's, you know, not a gossip or anything like that. But he does say that it's a gentleman that people know and respect. And Enfield is suspicious and suspects blackmail, but hey, it's a genuine check and it's not any of his business. Yeah. Always expecting a being a black male. Fucking racism. Why does it look to be the black guy? I know. He actually has a great line about how he prefers to mind his own business and like not ask questions about things, and that is, quote, No, sir, I make it a rule of mine. The more it looks like queer street, the less I ask. <laughs> nah. Not funny. That's a perfectly cromulent word. I didn't say it wasn't, I just really like queer street. Yeah, it's right next to Sesame Street. <laughs> exactly. Just down from Fear Street. Well, no, they, they go alphabetically. That's how street works. I don't know why you're shaking your head. They can't see you shaking your head. Joke go to about, any goddamn city. Yeah, you, I was making a joke about Fear Street, like the, the book series. I have no idea what that is. Well, that's your fault. But that's F. Why? I don't know if you know how the alphabet goes. You're so pedantic that you can't even let me have my R-L-S-T-I-J-K-L-M-N-O. You just couldn't let me have my R.L. Stein joke in peace. That's R.L. Stein? He's goosebumps. He also did Fear Street. Well, how many series does this man need? I think just those two. That's too many. Okay. Is that going to be a movie starring Jack Black too? Maybe. Too much. Not allowed. I'll trample on it. In a previous episode, you claimed he was your brother. Did I? Yeah, you did. Oh, that's how I could talk to him that you're, way. Because you're RJ and he's RL. <laughs> and I said that's not how being siblings work, and I'm pretty sure you told me to shut up. Hey, shut up, man. <laughs> My brother, RL. It's RJ here. Be cool. Great. Looking forward to seeing you. Bring the yarmulkes and the dreidels. Mm. It's a great Thanksgiving tradition. That's very confusing. Utterson presses Enfield, saying that if he won't reveal the name on the check, does he at least know the name of the Uggo child trampler? Enfield relents and says it's Mr. Hyde. And Utterson's like, oh, oh, oh. Well, well, I know who the other guy who signed the check is now. And then they both agree to never talk about it again. Utterson goes home and pulls some papers out of a safe. It's a will he drafted for a man named Dr. Henry Jekyll. Actually, to be specific on the will, it refers to him as Henry Jekyll, MD, DCL, LLD, FRS, etc. Which is just fabulously unnecessary. I don't even know what most of those are. Oh, you're a simpleton. Yeah, what's FRS? Isn't that like Mr. but in French? Monsieur? No. What the hell are you talking about? A fellow of the Royal Society. Ooh. And, a, Ooh. and an LLD? You give me shit saying I don't recognize these. You don't know them either. Warning language disability. <laughs> no, I don't think that was it. A doctor of laws. Or Latin doctor of laws. Ah. He just had all kinds of legume doctor. And it states upon his death that his estate is to be inherited by a Mr. Edward Hyde, who doesn't get any fun MD, PhD, whatever the fuck after his name. 
Utterson is super uncomfortable now and goes to visit a friend named Dr. Lanyon, who's friends with Jekyll. Utterson learns that Lanyon and Jekyll aren't on speaking terms anymore after getting into a huge fight about science. We really don't get anything specific, just science. What do you think the argument might have been? If they're more Bill Nye or if they're Team Beekman, you gotta choose. What? Beekman. What the fuck is Beekman? I showed you Beekman's oral. I for- promptly forgot it. Oh, there we go. No, we don't have time for this. <laughs> there you go. Oh, Team Nye all the way. Okay. No, no. That guy looks- Come on. <laughs> but look, there's all the other side characters. The fuck is that? Captain Kangaroo looking motherfucker. That's Lester. Of course it is. Yeah, he's a rat. There's another good picture of him. They all look like child molesters. Your, your childhood was very different than mine. Yeah, Much sadder. Mine, mine involved a, a friendly science man who didn't look like he was going to take me back to his van. By the way. By the way. Bill and I. Yes. He has a BS. Yes. That's it. I know. No masters. Yeah. In, no in, doctors. In, in engineering. Yeah. It's not even like, he's not even really like a science science guy. I think we might have even talked about this before. I don't know how the fuck it would have come up, but how does anything come up on this show? Whatever the reason, they don't talk anymore. And more importantly, old Lanyon Rings has never heard of a Mr. Hyde. So Utterson does the only logical thing he could think of and becomes obsessed with trying to stalk Mr. Hyde and hanging out by the building where Enfield saw him. He also makes a joke worthy of throwing him in pun jail, saying, If he be Mr. Hyde, I shall be Mr. Seek. Which is just, like, fuck you, guy. Eventually, his creeping pays off, and he meets Mr. Hyde, who is just as gross as Enfield described, although it's worth noting that Stevenson himself doesn't get all that descriptive. Hyde is just like, quote, deformed and displeasing and misshapen. The most specific thing we get about him is that he's short, that he's, he's a little younger, and he's just a short dude. It's one of those things where it's just like, oh, there's, there's just something about him. I, I can't put my finger on it. He's just so incredibly ugly in such a vague and non-specific way. That's how you avoid racism. <laughs> You're not wrong. Anyway, Hyde is all growly and rude to Utterson, but honestly, if some dude was creeping around my house and called out to me by name and wouldn't tell me how he knew me but wanted to come into my home, like, fuck him. I wouldn't be polite to him either. After this, Utterson heads to Jekyll's house, but he's not there. So he talks to Jekyll's butler, Poole, who says that Hyde has the keys to Jekyll's private lab and that Jekyll's instructed Poole and the other servants to obey Hyde and do whatever he tells them. Utterson continues to be unsettled because that's really the only emotion his good Victorian upbringing will allow. Two weeks later, we finally meet Dr. Jekyll when he throws a dinner party for all of his bachelor friends. Yeah, specifically only for his single male friends, including Utterson. Guy time. Bro. On Queer Street. <laughs> Just broing down on Queer Street. Utterson waits until everyone else has left and listens to Jekyll call Lanyon names and stuff until he finally asks what's up with Hyde, saying that he met him. And Jekyll's like, nothing's up with Hyde. Why would something be up with Hyde? I think something's up with you. You ever think of that? Huh? I'm not acting suspicious. Please take this leftover guacamole and leave and never speak of this again. A year passes. Yeah. In the face of all this weird, suspicious nonsense, Utterson just drops it for a whole year. He was literally stalking Hyde and staking out his house. Happens. And then a year just goes by. Yeah. It happens. Well, I mean, you know, there's Halloween. Before you know it, it's Thanksgiving. And then when you wake up the next day, it's basically Christmas. And 
then there's New Year's, and you know, we really don't want to do anything for a while. And then, you know, there's President's Day, MLK Day, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, Cinco de Mayo. There was Easter somewhere in there. Stranger Things Day Day. Season 3. There's a Arbor Day, <laughs> right, 4th you, of July. Every, every time you turn around, it's a no holiday. You got to take a long vacation. I don't think they're doing the 4th of July in Victorian London. <laughs> well, either way. Everything changes when someone commits a terrible crime that strikes fear into everyone in London. A maid comes forward as having witnessed the whole thing. She says that she watched from a window as some sweet-looking little old man approached a younger man to ask him for directions. Presumably to the nearest ass-kicking, because the young man then proceeds to beat the older man to death with a stick. But luckily, the maid recognized the murderer as... Utterson. No. Why? Try again. Billy Jack. No, that means nothing to anyone. Also, well, Billy Jack would t- never commit a murder like that. T- he shot a man right between the eyes. Yeah, t- a man who was a Nazi and a rapist and a murderer. It's going to be Mr. Hyde. It's Mr. Hyde. She calls the police and they find the body. And apparently he was like a member of parliament or whatever. And he has a letter in his pocket from Mr. Utterson because Utterson is just everybody's lawyer. And so they bring him in to check out the body because... He's qualified as a lawyer? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know why they're like, hey, you're, you're his lawyer. Come look at his corpse. You've seen him before. <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. But they had already recognized him as a dude from Parliament. Like, he was a known man. Well, we got to make sure. Double down. Maybe he had a twin. Yeah, I suppose. Check out his dick. You've seen his dick before, right? Is that his dick? Is that the man? <laughs> you seen that dick? You recognize that dick? We haven't seen his dick. Help! that's his dick. That's his dick, all right. Apart from his dick, he also sees that Hyde left behind the broken walking stick that he wailed on the old man with and recognizes it as Jekyll's and is like, mm, yeah, that's not great. Gonna just ignore that. That looks like Queer Street, and I am not about it. He leads the police to the house where Hyde seems to live and finds that it's empty. The cops stake it out, but days later, there's still no sign of it. In the meantime, Utterson nuts up and goes back to Jekyll's house and is just like, like, look, just be straight with me, dude. Are you hiding Hyde? And Jekyll, who looks really sick and pale and highly suspicious, is like, nope, Hyde's gone forever and no one will ever see him again. And I know this because reasons. Also, he sent me this letter that says so. And the letter is, in fact, from Hyde and does, in fact, basically say, deuces, fucker, I'm outies. Hyde. Now, how do they know it's Ouch. from Hyde? I could spell the name Hyde. I could sign it that way. Well, we'll get there. We'll get to that. Does it have like a paw print? No, it just <laughs> it just says it's like from Edward Hyde, but we'll, we'll get there. On the way out, Utterson asks Poole who dropped off the letter, and Poole has no idea what Utterson is talking about. Hmm. Utterson is then moved to show the letter to a clerk who works for him, who's also something of a handwriting expert. He has the clerk compare the party invitation from Jekyll with the letter from Hyde, and the clerk tells him that as far as he could tell, these were written by the same dude. It's just that the writing in Hyde's letter leans in the opposite direction of Jekyll's. Hmm. So what does Utterson do with this information? Goes to Queer Street. No, he does nothing. He does <laughs> nothing. Not a zilch. Not a damn thing. Not a damn thing. For all that he wants to play big dick detective man, he's so hung up on not making waves or causing a scandal and, like, mind his own business, because Jekyll is a gentleman of good standing, obviously, that he just closes his eyes and puts his fingers in his ears like, la la la, Jekyll is an upstanding, well-to-do man, and those kinds of people never do crimes, la la la. More time passes. Hyde is never found, and Jekyll seems to have returned to his old self, throwing parties and having a good old time. That is, until he gets horribly sick again and refuses to see Utterson. So Utterson goes to see Lanyon instead, because he has exactly three friends, 
And Landon is also really sick, and he tells him that he and Jekyll are donezo for good, friendship bracelets burned, the whole nine yards. Also, in a rare instance of this trope being applied to a dude and not a sensitive Victorian lady, he tells Utterson that the reason he's so ill is that he's received a terrible shock that he's pretty sure will kill him. And it does. R.I.P. Lanyon, you were a science man of some kind. But before he died, he gave Utterson an envelope that he said would explain everything about Jekyll, but gave him strict instructions to not open it until he kicked the bucket. So Utterson excitedly opens it to find... Lanyon? No. That, how would he fit in an envelope? You shrink him down. No. He could have been a tiny man. No, he, no. Condom. That would be really funny. Don't open this till I'm dead. It explains <laughs> everything about Jekyll. <laughs> it's just a condom. A used condom <laughs> with a hole in it. This explains everything. Uh, no, unfortunately, it's another envelope. And this one says that it can't be opened until Jekyll is dead. And even though Utterson really wants to open that envelope... He doesn't, because he's a good boy, gosh darn it. Jekyll keeps on kicking, but refuses to see anyone. Eventually, Utterson and Enfield are taking one of their silent Sunday strolls when they happen upon the street where they each met Hyde, and Enfield is again inspired to break their bro code of not gossiping about queer happenings, and is like, man, that Hyde shit was weird, huh? Remember when he trampled a kid and whacked a man to death? Wild. Also unrelated, just mentioning this offhand, Hyde's weird house is apparently actually a lab that's connected to the back of Jekyll's house, which is definitely not suspicious. At all. It just happened. You run off, you know, some space, and oh, look at that. You you gotta hide. You got hides. And then these respected men who keep their noses out of other people's business proceed to break into the courtyard and mash their faces up against the windows to look inside. And they see Jekyll, who's still looking pretty sick. He opens the window and is just like, uh, can I help you guys? And they're like, oh, we were just, you know, we're just checking in, seeing how you were doing. Thought we'd come say hi. You want to, like, come take a walk with us? And Jekyll responds by shrieking and slamming the window shut. ay 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 Yeah, like that. ay 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 No, less like that. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> that's, that's a good distracting way. <laughs> Either way, it's probably a no. And that's all we get for a while, until Jekyll's butler Poole calls Utterson all freaked out and tells him to come over, because Jekyll has been locked in his lab for days and refuses to come out, and the voice doing the refusing sounds a lot like someone who isn't Jekyll. Come out, come out, wherever you are. No! I'm good! Blowing up. (laughs) It's me, Jekyll. I'm okay. Everything's fine, guys. Experimented. <laughs> Working with helium. You know how it goes. Just doing a science. Science. <laughs> hey, hey. Can I trample on you? <laughs> Just be a bro and let me trample on you. Yeah. I'm not sure how uh, Utterson's lawyer skills make him particularly useful to this situation either, but he goes with Poole and they break down the door to the lab and, like, I don't understand why Poole couldn't just do that on his own. Like, why did Utterson need to be there? Because. This is a legitimate question I have. <laughs> and you don't have an answer either. I did not write this. Anyway, inside they find a man twitching on the floor who dies basically as soon as they come in. It's Mr. Hyde and he appears to have poisoned himself. R.I.P. Hyde. You are ugly and short. 
near the body are papers naming Utterson as the new heir to Jekyll's estate, and also instructions to go read Lanyon's envelope and then read another thing written by Jekyll. The strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. A dark, sordid tale of inheritance law and paperwork. At this point, the story changes and we enter Lanyon's perspective via his letter. Lanyon writes about getting a letter from Jekyll that says, Hey, so I know we're fighting and everything, but if you could just do me a major solid and break into my lab, steal some chemicals, and then give the chemicals to a messenger who's coming to your house at midnight tonight, that'd be awesome. Thanks. But Lanyon does it. And the messenger is none other than Mr. Hyde. Although to be fair, Lanyon doesn't realize this because he's never met Mr. Hyde until this moment. So he's just some dude who takes the chemicals and is like, Hey, you want to see something fucked up? Yeah. Lanyon's like, okay, yeah. And Hyde's like, are you sure? Because it's really fucked up. Like, it's going to freak your giblets right up. And Lanyon's getting annoyed. He's like, yeah, whatever. Just just show me. And so Hyde proceeds to chug the chemicals, immediately turn back into Dr. Jekyll, and scare the ever-loving fuck out of Lanyon, who finishes his letter by saying, this whole thing freaked my giblets so bad that I'm going to die now. Because <laughs> that's how that works. Yeah. Now, so here's the thing. This is supposed to be the big reveal. This was a mystery when it came out, you know? The reader only got Utterson's perspective, and even though it doesn't take much to deduce that uh, something fucked up is going on, we're really not given enough details to jump to the conclusion of Jekyll and Hyde are the same dude. So unfortunately, as a, a modern audience, we lose that moment of shock and surprise because we know already. At the time, you know, people reading it for the first time were all just like, holy shit, what? When Hyde turns into Jekyll. What? <laughs> but people can't do that. No, not usually. Next, Utterson moves on to Jekyll's letter, and we enter the good doctor's perspective, finally, and get to the bottom of all this craziness. Jekyll writes that all his life he has been a good boy who gives money to orphanages and helps little old ladies across the street and has never so much as peeped at a lady's exposed ankle. But also... He's fact thinking about it, though. Probably. He secretly has strong urges to go out and do dark, terrible things of a frustratingly nonspecific nature. He says that everyone is made up of these two dueling natures, and then he decides to make a potion to separate the two sides in the hopes of... I don't know, exactly. Just to see if he can do it, I guess. And it occurs to him that testing the potion on himself is really dumb and might kill him, but he doesn't anyway. And then he turns into Edward Hyde. Why his evil persona gets his own separate name immediately as opposed to just being, like, Bad Henry, I don't know. <laughs> he drinks the potion again and goes back to being Jekyll. Jekyll theorizes that Hyde is all shrunken and malformed because Jekyll has been repressing this side of himself. Hyde's also younger than Jekyll, which is awesome, because Jekyll's like 50, and so he can't get away with doing stupid bad boy shit anymore, but Hyde can. And so he gives his younger evil self his own special house and bank account for him to use uh, as he does his wicked stuff. Because here's the thing. We never learn what it is he does. Just that it's apparently really bad, and that Jekyll is super into it. We never get any concrete descriptions of anything. And, like, I guess there's something to be said about, like, ooh, but what's the worst thing you can imagine? Butt stuff. <laughs> That's the thing, though, because all future adaptational writers decided the worst thing they could think of was weird sex stuff. 
Which, you'll see later, the Stevenson took issue with. So, like, just throw us a fucking bone here, dude. He threw it in their ass. Gross. Part of it is in keeping with this whole repressed Victorian obsession with respectability. Like, oh, it's so awful, I cannot even mention it. But that is deeply unfulfilling. And after all that Stevenson has done to jerk the reader around, he owes something a bit more salacious than, I did a whole bunch of bad shit, and it fucking ruled. Because I could keep being a respectable gentleman on the outside, and then have my asshole cake and eat it too. Maybe that's what he was doing. He was eating asshole cakes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Jiggle continues by saying that after doing this a while, one morning he woke up his hide without having to take the potion. This freaked him out, and he changed back, and he swore off all hide-related activities for two months. But then he started getting that itch again, getting them hide shakes. So he takes the potion, and then he beats that nice old man to death. Whoops. Happens. So he stops again, until one day he's just walking around and starts thinking dirty, evil thoughts, and again transforms into hide on his own. And he flips out because now Hyde's wanted for murder and he can't just go home like this, which is why he writes Lanyon and makes him get the potions and they have that whole weird interaction and then Lanyon dies. And it wasn't even worth it because he changes back just a day later. And it takes two doses to get him back to normal, only for him to transform again. And this was when he was talking to Enfield and Utterson and that's why he flipped shit and slammed the window on them. The potion stops working and he locks himself in his lab trying to figure out what to do. And as the last bits of Jekyll are leaving him, he writes this letter for Utterson, saying that he doesn't know what'll happen with Hyde, if he'll kill himself or get arrested or what, but Jekyll is gone for good. Rip. The end. The reader is left to wonder if Jekyll managed to kill himself before fully transforming into Hyde, or if Hyde, I don't know, read the letter and went like, ah, I'm gonna poison myself, which seems unlikely given what we know of Hyde. So, yeah, that's, that's it. That's long and short of it. While Jekyll and Hyde may not carry quite as much cultural cachet as other famous literary monsters, the novella has still wormed its way into a metric fuckton of pop culture. There have been many, many stage shows, including several musicals, which never stops being weird to me, but the stage show that matters and is worth talking about is one made just one year after the story was published in 1887 by a dude named Thomas Sullivan. Why does this matter, you may ask? When does this matter? Close enough. Because it's actually where the majority of the changes to the story were made that would influence the definitive 1931 film version. Wasted no time. Not not even a little bit. Uh, Sullivan's stage show tells the story in a straightforward narrative, which I guess makes sense because stage play. It also reduces Utterson's role and focuses mainly on Jekyll. Additionally, he decided to make the line between Jekyll and Hyde a whole hell of a lot thicker. And so instead of being an isolated, awkward weirdo, Jekyll is a normal, practically saintly sunflower of a man who thought his potion would benefit the world. Somehow. Unclear. He also added in a fiancé for Jekyll and turned Hyde's vague evilness into crimes of a specifically sexual nature, which would be cemented into Hyde's characterization as a big ol' horny sex maniac. So Stevenson, like I said before, took issue with this, as even in the context of the novella, because again, this came out just a year later, people started actively interpreting Hyde as a symbol of sexual repression and unexpressed Victorian horniness, which he claimed was never meant to be part of the original story. Which of course begs the question of, well, what was then, Stevenson? If he's not going out doing sex crimes, what kind of crimes are they? Maybe you should have told us. You can't be mad now that people are interpreting it if you give them nothing to go on. Some people posit 
that the inclusion of the fiance character and having Hyde act as an overt horn dog towards her and other female characters was to get rid of any potential homosexual subtext that might come from a dude with no female companions who has an alter ego going out and doing unspecified crimes that may in fact be hot, hot butt sex. This is all hearsay though, so you know, your mileage may vary. Last thing, kind of unrelated, but still really interesting. So the whole reason the play even exists is because an actor named Richard Mansfield read the book and was so into the idea of playing the dual role that he got the rights and asked Sullivan to write the play. And it did really well and it went on tour across America and they came to London to perform it just before the Jack the Ripper murders happened. And people were like, wow, these murders seem like something that like Hyde would do. And there's that one guy who's been playing Jekyll and Hyde really good who just rolled into town. And Mansfield actually legitimately became a suspect in the case and the play flopped. All because he was just too good at playing a murderous goblin man. And then that is when they rebranded the stage show and named it Cats. <laughs> yep, the beloved cats we know today. I'm hot. Meow. Meow. <laughs> and that's why he's hairy in all the recent adaptations. Yeah, that's it. So there were nearly a dozen silent film adaptations prior to the 1931 version, but that's the talkie and largely the definitive one. And it draws heavily from the Sullivan play. It completely ditches Utterson, like he's just gone. And the mystery element of the story is also just gone. There's never like a, hmm, who is this strange man? Hide. Uh, and it brings in two female characters, a fiancé named Muriel and a singer named Ivy Pearson. The makeup effects and transformation of Jekyll were considered, like, revolutionary at the time, and they would serve as a template for future Hyde depictions. It was a weird, hairy monkey with fangs. Yeah. Which, I mean, has absolutely nothing to do with anything Stevenson said, but I guess, again, that's what you get when you're vague. People decide weird, hairy monkey with fangs. So, unlike the book, the movie spends a lot of time showing us just what kind of mischief Hyde gets up to, which seems to solely be sexually assaulting and physically abusing Ivy while she cries a whole bunch. No joke, this is like half the movie, and it is very uncomfortable. I'm pretty sure this director had a fetish, is what I'm saying. Especially, like I said, I hadn't read the novella yet. And so I'm reading it, and then after being like, wow, none of those really long, uncomfortable, extended scenes of him, like, chasing her around and pawing at her while she cries are in this at all. Hmm. So what do you think uh, Hyde should have had instead? Like, a panty fetish? I want to <laughs> smell your face. <laughs> I mean, it could have been anything. That's the thing. It could have been anything. Ooh, he could have oh, wanted to go out and do vandalism he could have gotten out and like gotten super drunk and oh, like drove I, a car I know around. i know what it is now. he could have crank called people he could have been in underground boxing fights he could have ran around nude dick in the wind like the sky is the limit i got a good one what he had the same fetish as troy mcclure uh, i don't remember what troy mcclure's fetish was they alluded several times to the fact he liked going to aquariums oh that's right in the simpsons episode <laughs> Yeah, I don't think they ever get more specific than that. But just there's something it, about a quarry. They, they leave it to you to connect the dots. Oh, jeez. Maybe that's it. Maybe. Maybe he's just into aquariums. So one thing of interest is that for all that the 1931 version changes, it keeps the correct pronunciation of Jekyll. It's 10 years later in what is otherwise basically a shot-for-shot -shot remake of the 31 version that we get the Jekyll pronunciation that would become the norm. 
So in the literary realm, there's not too much of interest, mostly a bunch of books that are like, ooh, but what if we saw the story from Hyde's perspective? Whoa. How different. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, But there is a 1990 novel called Mary Riley, written by Valerie Martin, that invents a young housekeeper for Dr. Jekyll named Mary, who falls in love with him while also dealing with his obnoxious assistant, Edward Hyde. The plot progresses the same way, and eventually Mary learns the truth, and blah blah blah. The novel was nominated for the Nebula Award for Best Novel in 1990, and the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel in 1991. In 1996, it was adapted into what is apparently a fairly awful movie starring Julia Roberts and John Malkovich. The YouTube clips are pretty wild, though. That's pretty weird for John Malkovich to play a maid. (laughs) Yeah, everyone was very surprised. It might be worth a watch. He has luxurious shoulder-length hair, and he looks like Tommy Wiseau. It's it's worth a Google. I don't have that voice in me. No, it's okay. I'm a maid. Was that supposed to be Tommy Wiseau or John Malkovich? (laughs) A bit of both. It was neither. (laughs) (laughs) In 1988, Nintendo made a side-scrolling Jekyll and Hyde game for the NES that has since gained notoriety for being an objectively horrific, confusing, nearly unplayable game that is all but impossible to actually beat, and is one of the games of choice for people who yell about video games on YouTube to yell about. There have been a bazillion different cartoon shows, presumably including The Simpsons, that have done an episode that parodies the story with whatever mild-mannered character is available turning into, like, a grunting nightmare person. Basically, like, the the nega version of the nutty professor trope, where they become, like, a smooth-talking lover boy instead. Buddy. Buddy love. It's me, but love! Yeah, yeah, no, um, the nutty professor is just Jekyll and Hyde, isn't it? Oh, you're forgetting, though. You realize that The Nutty Professor existed before it was a uh, Eddie Murphy movie, right? It was originally a, a Jerry Lewis movie. That was a remake that they did with Eddie Murphy. No, you didn't judge him by your face. You didn't uh, know that. <laughs> you're saying the clumps weren't in that version, too? No. And and the like, magic potion that turns you into a smooth, horny boy is is a trope unto itself. And it's, it's, it's just Jekyll and Hyde. Like, it's a horny secondary persona that begins to take over the main scientist character's life. How the fuck did I not see this? The Nutty Professor's Jekyll and Hyde. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Some other sundry Jekylls and Hydes featured in movies and TV include a brief appearance in one of the many nightmarish non-plot-related interludes in the 1994 movie The Page Master, where he's voiced by Leonard Nimoy. His hide is a literal actual troll monster and scared the fuck out of me as a child. The goddamn League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie, which at this point we've probably mentioned as many times as fucking Fifty Shades of Grey, where he's played by Jason Fleming as a weenie scientist who has the ability to hulk out into a giant hide with terrifying buff arms and a cockney accent. What if Christian Grey... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> ...is the hide version of... Hmm. Well, you, you th- some other film protagonist... <laughs> That would explain the scars and the deformness that he has. It's funny you should bring up the idea of a sexy hide. Because from all of my research, there's only one instance of a sexy hide. Which is just, you know, usually like, Mr. Hyde, I'm gross and I look like an animal man. But in that, where we also just were, just like an episode ago, is uh, the weird and confusing mess of Disney characters in classic literature that is Once Upon a Time. Jekyll's played as like a mousy little nerd and Hyde looks like a sexy Twilight vampire. Most recently, 
In the failed Sexy Mummy reboot, Jekyll is played by Russell Crowe as the head or something of a mysterious organization that wants to recruit Tom Cruise and, and kill the Sexy Mummy. In the movie, Jekyll gives himself injections to keep Hyde at bay, but it all gets fucked up for reasons I can't remember, and he turns into Hyde, who has glowy eyes and is really strong and has a Cockney accent, because I guess that's a requirement. So, so Meg. So, RJ. You got Jekyll. Yeah. You got Hyde. I do. Which one's the lip cock Democrat? What? I don't know. Which one's the Republican? Well, Jekyll is the one who's the middle-aged man who's obsessed with respectability politics to the point where he invents a potion to split himself so that his, his base desires can go off and do their own thing while he maintains his public image as a man with good values and shit. So, like, I don't know. <laughs> Which one's the feminist? There are no women in the story, so I, I couldn't tell you. So what you're telling me is this book does not pass the Bechdel test. There are no women. There's a maid who sees a murder happen. No, it does not. That's a thumbs down for me, bro. Now, the thing is, even though there's only the maid, I think we should do a feminist reading and critique of this piece of work. Okay, hit me. I don't know. Oh, well then fuck you. <laughs> I thought you had something to say, but no. <laughs> and so we've reached that point in the show where I say, Hey, RJ. What's up? The strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Good or... Guilty. He did it. Yes, he... Caught him red-handed. Yeah. It's right there on the page. He did. That That's not what I was asking. Oh, I... you asked me about the case. Well, yes, but is, Guilty. It, is, Guilty. It, is it a good or bad story? I think it's a story that captures the duality of human nature. Does it, though? I think maybe he like cross-dressing. It's like a pretty pink princess outfit. Mm-hmm. And he would prance around. He just didn't want to be judged, you know, normally like that. And he just wanted to let his freak flag, freak flag fly. Man, that's hard to say. And I think maybe it's interesting if you want to read into uh, Robbie's life over there. There was the good Robbie and the bad Robbie. Bad Robbie was a sick Robbie. Healthy Robbie is good Robbie. But he was all weird looking and maybe he had the life that he really wanted to be. Maybe he was Hyde and he really wanted to be Jekyll and he just never could. But Because of the Burke. Being, but he was a good dude. He didn't go out and do crimes. But maybe he wanted to. I guess. Or maybe, well, he was, he was the rebel. Why that long hair <laughs> and the, the velvet jacket. He was like, fuck whatever you guys taught me. And well, fuck you, cummy. Fuck you, cummy. Um, well, yeah, that's why I think this reads a little more obviously as a, a tirade against Victorian repression and respectability politics because that's the whole thing with uh, why Utterson takes so long to solve the mystery because it's really obvious that Jekyll is involved in some shady shit even if he can't guess that he's literally turning into a goblin man and he's still just like, I'm not going to investigate this further because nope, he's a good person and that's bad and I'm an upstanding gentleman who doesn't do things and, and it's, you know, it's stupid. So I, I think he was, with his, his velveteen jacket, was, uh, just kind of yelling about that. People just need to masturbate more. People need to masturbate, like, way more. It would solve so many problems. So, Megan. Yeah, RJ? The case. Of Jekyll Island. Your thoughts? It smells like sulfur a lot, which is kind of gross. There you go. <laughs> Rip. As to the novella, I mean, I'm always down for a story that, that sticks it to uh, Victorian politics. 
it is kind of spooky. I didn't do a very good job of conveying the spookiness, but it is all terribly mysterious and strange and eerie. And the lack of details does kind of piss me off, I'll be honest. And so I get that that part of that is the, the point that, you know, me wanting to know Hyde's crimes is like, there's evil in your soul too, because you want to know exactly, you know, the gory details of whatever he got up to. And it's like, no, I also just want to know, like, what he's doing, especially if you're going to rail at people for being like, he wasn't doing sex things. It's like, okay, well then what, what was he doing? So yeah, no, it's fun. It's short. You can read it online for free. Get yourself in that Halloween spirit. And that'll about do it for this episode of Oh No Lit Class. If you want to get us feeling just absolutely spooktacular, then you could subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. Say something nice about us. Freak our giblets. I mean, it's going to be a thing. It's going to take off. I know it. You can also listen to us just everywhere, including Spotify, which is just very exciting. And at onolitclass.com. You can follow us on Twitter at onolitclasspod. You can like us on Facebook. You can join the Facebook group. Go meme that shit up. You can check out our Tumblr at onolitclass.tumblr.com. If you want to just send our asses straight to spooky Halloween heaven, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onolitclass, where patrons can vote on episodes we do and receive sweet bonus content, shirts, posters, stickers, all kinds of just good stuff. Thank you to Best Day, as always, for the use of our theme song, which we ruined partially in the spirit of the season. Uh, The next episode and part two of our spooky, scary Halloween spectacular will be on October 25th. Until then. Now, other thought is this. Why? This is kind of a warning from old Robbie. Why did you wait till I was at the end? You're just fucked if you have any kind of crazy desires, because if you do it in the daylight hours, you're going to be judged. And you're going to be ostracized for it. If you turn yourself into a little freak and you do it, well, you're going to be judged and ostracized. Eventually, you commit suicide. Really, the only way to win is not even to play. That sucks. Keep your fetishes indoors. On the internet. You get one of them robots. Okay. that That's officially <laughs> hashtag too spoopy for me. So until next time, I'm Megan. You think that robots can make an O-face? That's RJ. We love you. Bye. <laughs>I chose to live deliciously. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. That's great. It's our first Halloween episode. (laughs) That's not what a goat sounds like. Black Phil up again. (laughs) What is that like to live deliciously? As we reference a movie that came out, what, like a year and a half ago? Two years ago. (laughs) Three years ago. 2015. What, 2015? That's what it said. Fuck. All right. Yeah, no, we can't have any of this in. We're so behind on the Yeah, we're up there with the Simpsons.